Chapter Thirty Two of the Curious Quest by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty Two. Bliss awoke on the morning of the nineteenth of December with a curious little throb of expectation. He lay with wide open eyes looking around him. Now that the time had really come, he could scarcely believe that his year was over, his privations actually at an end. His thoughts dwelt only a moment or two upon the change that that day would bring him personally. The wonderful part of it all was Francis. More wonderful than anything was the fact that, at the end of these twelve long months of hardship and suffering, it was of someone else, he thought, and not of himself. He sprang out of bed and washed and dressed as carefully as possible. Then he counted his money. He had thirty-two shillings, and he owed seven for his room. He paid his bill, and, at a little after eight o'clock, sallied out into the street. As he opened the front door, he almost ran into a familiar little figure whose hand was upon the bell. "'Mrs. Heath!' he exclaimed. "'Why, good morning!' It was a transfigured Mrs. Heath, a tremulous, beatific Mrs. Heath, with a touch of heaven in her face and all the joy of the world shining out of her poor, tired eyes. She clutched at Bliss's hand. "'It's you, sir, it's you that's done it!' she cried, holding his hands tightly, devouring him with her eager gaze. "'I've thought it out always. It came anonymous last night with banknotes for sixty-five pounds, and not a wink of sleep have I had all night. And I've changed some of them, and they're real. And, oh, sir, oh, Mr. Bliss, the children are safe, and I can send Hughie to school, and I, I know it's you, and I can't say a word. My, my throat's full.' My God bless you! The wonder of it all seized Bliss. He saw a new world, a new horizon. The tired little woman from Fenden Street had lifted the curtain. He felt strange tears in his own eyes as he thrust his arm protectingly through hers. Dear Mrs. Heath, he said, you were so kind to me, and you taught me so much. I sent you the money. I want you to be happy and free from anxiety all your life. You've done your share of work, you know, and in a few days I shall bring my wife to see you. You've plenty left for yourself, sir, Mrs. Heath asked, with a very human nervousness. Bliss laughed gaily. I have more money, Mrs. Heath, than any man ought to have, he assured her. I've wasted a good deal of it and a good deal of myself. We'll come and tell you the story in a few days. I'm going back to my own. If there's a heaven, sir, she began. Bliss wrung her hand as he hurried off. But at the corner of the street he turned to watch her for a moment. She was stepping briskly along homeward. Her head was a little uplifted. With a sudden clearness of vision, he fancied that he could read her thoughts, that he could realise the crushing weight 
lifted from her poor, overtired heart. The sweetness of it all, the children safe and cared for, the warm, luxurious peace of her finished struggle for existence. The little black figure vanished almost jauntily in the crowd, and Bliss turned on his way with a laugh that was almost a sob. Arrived at the offices of the Omnibus Company, he made his way at once to the foreman's office. "'Brought you back my cheque, sir,' he announced. "'I couldn't find you last night, and I was driving till past one o'clock.' "'Going to leave us, Bliss?' the man asked. "'I thought you were getting on so well.' "'I've come into a little piece of good fortune, sir,' Bliss explained. "'I'm going to give up driving for the present.' The man stared at him. "'Well, I'm hanged if yours ain't a lucky bus,' he declared. "'Your mate Jennings is going round the place as if he was stark mad. Some bloke he never heard of has sent him a hundred pounds for his kids. Queer part of it is that I tumbled into fifty quid myself a few days ago. And now you're in luck. Fair licks me, blowed if it don't. He glanced a little suspiciously at Bliss, who made his escape as soon as he could. He breakfasted at the coffee-stall, and set off for France's lodgings. She was just leaving the house as he arrived. Her face fell. "'You haven't lost your place, Ernest,' she exclaimed anxiously. He shook his head. "'I'm taking a holiday,' he said, "'and I want you to take one, too.' "'Holiday, indeed.' she echoed bitterly. You know I can't do anything of the sort. On the contrary, I know that you can, and you will, he replied. If I ask nothing more of you in this world, dear, I'm going to ask you to do as I tell you today. Please telephone to your people and tell them that you are unable to come to work. You might add that it will be exceedingly doubtful if you ever return at all. She looked at him and her hands began to tremble. For a moment she did not speak, and he found himself studying her for the last time in this guise, with a rapt and curious interest. He saw the shiny places on her worn black jacket, and the neat lace collar at her throat, grown threadbare with frequent washings. He realized all the pathos of that desperate struggle between her womanly instinct for neatness and the hard hand of poverty, the faded band of ribbon carefully arranged around her hat, the mended gloves, the shoes, both of them now with their little patch. He guessed at the quality of her miserable breakfast. There was something in her footsteps akin to the tired plod of the countless multitudes thronging their way citywards. Nothing that he himself had suffered seemed worth an instant's thought compared with the joy of his present anticipations. Ernest, she gasped, has anything really happened? He took her arm tightly and hailed a taxicab. Nothing has happened, dear, that is not good, he assured her. Nothing is going to happen that is not good for both of us. Now, will you just sit in this cab? while I go across the telephone box and telephone to your people. She obeyed him, but when he came back he could see that she was still distressed. 
He took her hand and held it firmly. Dear, he said, you must start the day by being a little brave. You have a lot to go through before it is over, but I want you to try to think of one thing and trust in me. Your troubles are over. Not only your troubles, but the troubles of your two sisters are over. My troubles are over. We have had a hard struggle, but today it has come to an end. Don't tell me too much, she begged. I'm afraid I cannot bear it. But tell me a little. We shall neither of us ever know again what it means to be absolutely poor, he said. Do you mean that you have a rise, a better situation? He smiled cheerfully. Uh, something even better than that, he assured her. Everything will be made absolutely clear to you, quite naturally, if you will only trust me and remember that I love you as I love nothing else on earth. Just sit still and take things as they come, and believe that what is coming is good. She pressed his hands with sudden fervour. All that she would have said was in her eyes. Suddenly the taxicab stopped. "'Where on earth are we?' she asked. He handed her out onto the pavement and paid the taxicab man. "'It's a church,' she gasped, looking at him in amazement. He led her across the threshold. The church was in a busy neighbourhood, and no one took any notice of them as they passed in. Bliss removed his hat and stood still for a moment. "'Dearest,' he said softly, "'is this a great shock to you? Try and bear it. We are going to be married.' She laughed a little hysterically, and then, before she could say anything, she was suddenly conscious that he was leading her up the aisle, and that the organ was playing soft music. There was scarcely anyone else in the building. The words of the service commenced almost as soon as they reached the chancel. A pew-opener gave her away. Her responses were almost mechanical. The clergyman summoned them afterwards into the vestry, where they signed their names. Bliss laid a piece of paper upon the table and whispered in the clergyman's ear, "'Don't look at that until after we've gone. It's a little thank-you offering. You can make what use of it you like.' The clergyman shook hands with them. They walked down the aisle, and once more out into the street. She caught at his arm. "'Ernest,' she faltered, "'do you realise what we've done?' "'Of course I do,' he answered cheerfully. "'I've been preparing for it for a long time. Bless you, the bands have been up for nearly a month. And you never told me?' "'I never told you.' he replied, for a reason which you will now understand in a very short time. All I can say is, please still trust in me. Another taxicab, she exclaimed, as he held up his hand. Ernest, she added with a frown, I'm afraid I shall have to begin lecturing you very early. Even if you have a good place, you can't afford taxicabs all the time. He laughed as he gave the man the address. Then he sat by her side and held her tightly to him. "'Dearest,' he whispered fervently, "'this is the most wonderful moment of my life. You belong to me for always. 
You are my wife. Do you realize it? My wife! He kissed her, heedless of the passers-by. She looked at him wonderingly. His lips were quivering, as though with anticipation. His eyes were bright. They drew up at last in Harley Street. He helped her to alight, paid the man, and rang the bell of the most familiar front door, which was opened almost immediately by the same pompous servant. "'Is Sir James Aldroyd in?' "'What name, sir?' "'Just tell him a patient,' Bliss replied. "'I have come to see him professionally.' "'Have you an appointment, sir?' the man asked. "'I have.' Bliss told him grimly. I made it twelve months ago. The servant stared at him for a moment in a puzzled manner. Then he showed them both into a waiting-room and left them. Francis caught his arm. "'But, Ernest!' she exclaimed. "'You are not ill. Don't tell me that you are ill.' "'Never better in my life,' he assured her cheerfully. "'Just wait, that's all.' And remember what I told you. Everything is going to turn out wonderfully for us. Think of all the things you want in life, and imagine that they are coming true. Then the shock won't be so great. The servant reappeared. Sir James will see you, sir, he announced. They were ushered into the same consulting room. Sir James looked up from his table and it was obvious that he failed to recognize his visitor. It was obvious, too, that he was a little surprised by this visit from a young couple who scarcely seemed to belong to the class of patient whom he was accustomed to see in Harley Street. He turned around in his chair. "'What can I do for you?' he asked. Bliss came and stood by the table. "'You don't recognize me, Sir James?' The physician looked at him curiously. "'I recollect you perfectly,' he exclaimed with sudden interest. "'Your name is Bliss.' "'Quite right,' Bliss admitted. Sir James leaned back in his chair and scrutinized his visitor. There happened to be a mirror just behind, and Bliss caught a glimpse of his own face. With a lightning-like effort of memory— he saw himself as he had been on that memorable visit twelve months ago, dressed in ultra-fashionable clothes, languid, pallid, and heavy-eyed from the effects of late hours and ill-digestion, a young man about town seeking for his pleasures in the flowery waves of dissipation, without a single aim in life or a serious thought. In the looking-glass opposite, he saw now a very different young man, unfashionably dressed, sturdier, grimmer, with new lines about his mouth, and a steady light in his eyes. He drew a great sigh of relief. It seemed to him at that moment that he realized, with a strange and wonderful thankfulness, all that had happened to him. "'Have you brought me?' the physician asked. That twenty-five thousand pounds? I have not, Bliss answered steadfastly, because you have lost your bet. Twelve months ago I left your rooms, and a few hours later I walked out into the street with a five-pound note in my pocket, and only the clothes I stood up in. 
From that day to this I have lived entirely and wholly on what I have earned. I have kept my word in the letter and in the spirit. I have accepted alms from no one. I have gained no benefit, direct or indirect, from my position or my means. In cases where, to alleviate the distress of others, I have drawn from my resources, I have cut myself away from those people at once, so that no advantage could possibly come to me. I have been a chauffeur, a light porter, a commercial traveller, and I wound up driving an omnibus for nearly two months. I left the company this morning with a good character. The physician leaned back in his chair and looked at his patient thoughtfully. "'And your health?' he inquired. "'Excellent.' "'The giddiness and faintness you complained of?' Uh, "'Gone.' Sir James rose and held out his hand. "'My young friend,' he declared solemnly, "'I have never had a patient of whom I am more proud. I shake your hand, not once, sir, but as many times as you like.' Bliss was conscious of a curious thrill as he stood there, his hand grasped by the strong, capable fingers of the older man. He thought once more of that other day twelve months ago, when he had lounged in after a late night to receive the first blow which had struck beneath the veneer of his self-confidence and self-esteem. He remembered the rush of passionate shame which had given birth to his bet. He was conscious of the new vigour in his life. The tears stood in his eyes. "'I have gained many things during my exile, Sir James,' he said. "'Amongst others, a wife.' Sir James turned and bowed to Francis. "'My wife,' Bliss continued, smiling at the wonder in her face and drawing her affectionately towards him, "'was a typist.' She did not even call herself a young lady typist. She has earned her own living for the last six years. Oh, I congratulate you both heartily, Sir James said. Your husband, my dear young lady, he added to Francis, is a most wonderful person, for whom I have a sincere admiration. He has done what very few young men in his position, and with his bringing up, would have been capable of. Francis was incapable of speech. Bliss patted her hand. We were only married this morning, he explained, and she married me as a poor man. I am trying to prepare her for the change gradually. And in the meantime, if you will give me a dip of ink, Sir James, your hospital shall not suffer from the fact that I have won my wager. Bliss drew a brand new checkbook from his pocket. Once more he signed his name at the foot of a cheque. Once more the sense of wealth and power swept over him. Pay to Sir James Aldroyd or order the sum of £25,000. He read the words upon the cheque over to himself and laughed softly. Doctor, he said, I had twelve and sevenpence when I came in, and my wife was reproaching me for extravagance because we have had two taxicabs this morning. The physician leaned over and saw the amount of the cheque. Once more he grasped Bliss's hand. My young friend, he exclaimed, 
If you could only realise the good this is going to do. Sir James, Bliss replied, I can realise better now than I could have done twelve months ago. Thanks to you, I have found a dozen ways in which I can occupy my time and my money in the future. There is nothing I am so anxious to hear, Sir James said, as the story of your adventures. Will you and your wife do me the honour of dining with me any night next week? Shall we say Wednesday? I should like to ask some of the directors of my hospital to meet you. That will give us great pleasure, Bliss assented. You will excuse us now. This has been our first visit. The physician touched the bell. He gave them each a hand. I wish you both all the happiness you deserve, he said heartily. I don't think, uh, he added, patting Bliss upon the shoulder, that I have ever had a patient who has done me greater credit. End of chapter 32